Turn with me in the Word to Acts chapter 9. The Word we were just praying that God would use to show us Christ. We now look in that Word to see Christ. Acts chapter 9. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, and we come now to the conversion of Saul, who will eventually become known as the Apostle Paul. I want to draw your attention to one very sweet, sweet verse, uh, one of the sweetest verses to me I've, I've ever heard. It's one of my all-time favorites. I say that probably about a thousand different verses, but this one for today is one of my all-time favorites. So just want to draw your attention to it. Look with me, Roman, uh, Romans, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, and this is it, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word this morning, as we have prayed and sung just moments ago, so we do now pray again. Lord, help us to see Christ this morning. Father, we pray that your spirit would shine upon the text on the page, that you would open our hearts and that you would illumine these truths for us in such a way that we can see them clearly and not only satisfied with seeing them. We pray, Father, that your spirit would strengthen our faith and draw us closer in our trust of you, that we would draw closer to you. We pray that you do that this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Broken, I think, is probably an adjective we have all used at one time or another to describe our spiritual condition. I think that every individual who is being drawn to salvation who is being brought to his knees before the cross, would say at one point in time or another that his life was shattered or that he was experiencing some brokenness and that he needed something beyond himself. Indeed, when those of us can look back at our lives and see the train wreck that has unfolded, in in many ways that's what it seems like to us, a slow-moving collision of immense power that seems to be unstoppable, one train car piling up on top of another. And we've all looked back in those moments and we've realized how we went wrong, how we acted in sin, how we were proud or stubborn or selfish, as the case may be, and how we began to go off the tracks and it began to unleash a flood of devastation that was almost slow moving but very predictable as one car just piled on to the next. And we've come to that moment where we say, how do I fix this? How do I make it right? And God in his mercy sends somebody to you in that moment. He says, you can't. And it sounds like bad news, but it's a sweet offer. You can't, but there is one who can. And we realize that we have sinned against a holy God, that we have offended him, and that there has to be a reckoning. There has to be justice. But Christ provides that reckoning for us on the cross. He pardons us by taking our sins on himself and 
dying in our place on the cross in order to remove us from our sin, to present us without spot or blemish before the Father in heaven above. And it's a sweet, wonderful, wonderful sound. And many of us then, we hear that, we receive that, we say thank you to the Lord for that, and then we go on our merry way and we forget about the fact that having trusted in Christ, we are now always to live in Christ. We encounter this morning the, the terrorist of the church, Saul, who in very short order is going to become the greatest missionary of the first century, if not all of the history of Christendom. He's going to write more than half of our New Testament. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is going to put forth scripture that is going to encourage, challenge, convict, teach, and unleash God's people But before any of this happens, he comes face to face with Jesus on the road. And this idea is what Paul encounters. That the church is Christ. And that that Christ is in and with and among his church. Look with me. Verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And we looked last week at the reality that Paul, his upbringing, raised at the feet of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin, named for the greatest man in the tribe of Benjamin, the first king of Israel, Saul himself. He was so zealous for the traditions of his forefathers and he was so opposed to this new teaching of Jesus Christ that he didn't hesitate or blink for one second to go forth persecuting the church. We saw him originally two chapters ago in chapter 7 overseeing and orchestrating the stoning of Stephen. And here he is now, just as zealous as ever, going after the church. He gets letters from the chief priest. He's on his way north to Damascus from Jerusalem. He's going to find anybody who's who's there who is a Christian, as the scripture says, belonging to the way. Okay, And that's the point. Christianity comes out of Judaism. Jesus is the Messiah, long foretold and long promised. And Paul is saying, no, this is the truth. And the Christians are saying, here's the fulfillment of that truth. This is the way. And Paul can't handle that. Saul can't handle that. And he begins his persecution. On his way to Damascus, verse 3, as he went, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, as we've looked at this passage, he's clearly going and persecuting Christians. He's finding men and women, boys and girls. It does not matter. Anybody who is following Jesus Christ, he is approaching those individuals, a whole multitude of them, and he's doing all manner of things from either murdering them to imprisoning them, other forms of persecution. He's breaking families apart. He is attacking people in the plural sense, multiple individuals. And as he's going to Damascus to continue this persecution of 
people, Christians, followers of the way, Jesus confronts him on the road, and he doesn't say to him, Jesus doesn't say to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting my people? He doesn't say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those who are following me, who are followers of the way? In this particular passage, what Luke wants you to understand, Luke, who is the traveling companion of Paul, What he wants you to see here is that there was a fundamental shift in Paul's thinking regarding the relationship of the people of God to God and his relationship to the people of God as he established a relationship to God the Father through Jesus Christ. And this has got to transform all of us in our walk with Christ. What Saul thinks he is doing is he thinks he is persecuting individual Christians And when Jesus confronts him, the truth that Christ expresses to him is this. You're not persecuting merely individual Christians. You're persecuting me. Christ's proclamation of the gospel to Saul on the road to Damascus is this. I am so close with my people. I am so near to them that there is no daylight between us. And whenever you do anything to any one of the Lord's people, you're not doing it merely to them. You're doing it to him. As I was reflecting on this passage, I remembered that we've actually seen this before, and I didn't draw your attention to it then, but I'd like to now. If you flip back just a couple of chapters to Acts chapter 5, we recognize through Peter's confrontation of Ananias that this mentality was very much so the mentality of the first century church. In Acts chapter 5, you recall Ananias and Sapphira, they had a piece of property, they sold it, Uh, it was worth, say, $1,000 They said it was worth $500, and they gave $500 to the church, and they said this is the total value of the property, and all along it was really worth $1,000. They were keeping back some of it for themselves. That's the deal. They wanted to present themselves as being as generous and as uh, gracious with their their finances as others before them, namely Barnabas. But the, the confrontation that ensues here, if you'll look, verse 3, Peter says to him, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, who is Ananias lying to? He's lying to the church. He's lying to Peter, the apostles, everybody who's gathered there. He's presenting himself as offering the full amount of money for the property when, in fact, he's only giving a portion of the proceeds from the property And when Peter confronts him, though Ananias and Sapphira are lying to members of the church, Peter's statement is, how is it that Satan filled your heart to lie to me? He doesn't say that. To all of us here, he doesn't say that. He says, how is it that Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Meaning that the apostle Peter's perspective is that as you're being false to the church, You're not just being false to the church, you're being false to the Spirit who indwells every believer within the church. The same idea, the Holy Spirit is so close with his people. In fact, described in Ephesians chapter 1 as indwelling us. 
being the down payment, the earnest money of our future inheritance. And Peter's understanding as he's confronting Ananias and Sapphira is the exact same. What you do to the church, to the members of the church, you're doing to God. The Spirit is the Lord. The Lord is the Spirit. So if you do anything to any one of us who are in Christ, you're doing it to Christ. This expression, in Christ, is the dominant expression in Paul's letters. If you've ever received an email from me, you know that I generally sign all of my correspondence in Christ, Joshua Clay Camp. I recognize that he is with me, that the things I write, and, and don't get me wrong, it's not that I'm sinless or anything like that, but I try to always recognize that everything I say or do, I am not the only one saying or doing it, but that as a part of Christ, I am saying and doing in such a way as either to reflect his glory or to diminish his glory. But either way, Christ is still with me and I am still in him. This has to transform our thinking because as we take comfort in the fact that Christ is with us, in us, me individually, I have to recognize that that's true for you too. Paul uses this expression in Christ over a hundred times throughout his writings. And he makes this statement in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so what Paul is saying is, I want you guys to know what is there for you in Christ. And this is a, a preposition. This is time, time for a little bit of a Greek language lesson. But this idea of being in Christ, it's very specific. What Paul is saying is, you can think of Christ as being, for example, a circle. If you draw a circle on the ground, this here would be outside of Christ, and this here would be inside of Christ, okay? And so his idea is that we are called to live our lives in Christ. And what that means is that there's a certain way Christ is going to respond to situations. There's a certain approach that Christ is going to take as he relates to different people. And as we are living our lives, we should always be living our lives with this understanding that every decision, every action, every word that we take, everything that we do, we're to do it in such a way as that we're making sure we're standing in the sphere. We're standing in Christ as we do that. Because Christ remains faithful to us even when we are faithless to him. But the call is that we would be faithful to him as he is faithful to us. Now, you're hearing me say all that. You're saying, what real practical difference does this make? 
for me to recognize that Jesus is so close to me day by day that there's no daylight between me and him. And what practical difference does it make as I look at the members of my church congregation and I think that same thing about them, that there's no daylight between them and Christ? What practical difference? It's going to impact your life in three ways. Number one, it is going to free you from what I like to refer to as spiritual myopia, nearsightedness. We all have done this from time to time. We go through struggles. We encounter some difficulty, some burden. The kids aren't behaving the way that they should be behaving. You're fearing the possibility that you're going to be losing your job on Monday morning. Things are crashing around all around you, and you tend to just zero in here on your issue, whatever it is that is most significant to you, and it's sort of like looking at your life through a microscope. My wife, for a number of years, worked at a lab, an entomology lab, as she was attending the University of A&M, and her job was to catalog microscopic wasps. These things, you, you, they would be like a black little speck on your finger. You wouldn't even know it was there. And she would take these things and put them, mount them in slides and put them up under uh, a giant microscope and look through this microscope and really pull out all the details. And under the microscope, this little microscopic thing would become this enormous thing. And you could see all kinds of detail, the hair on the body. And you'd think to yourself, I didn't know hair follicles could be that small. You'd see the veins and the wings and all this kind of stuff. And her job for many years in university was to take these little microscopic wasps and just to catalog them. And she'd just look at these things all day long. And she'd come home and she'd tell me about them. Oh, the wasps that I saw today, they looked like this and they looked like that. And she's enthusiastic about it and all. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then she's describing these enormous giant mandibles that can just shred through tree trunks and just eat people whole. And you're like, what? Like, I thought it was a little speck on your finger. She's like, oh, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I'm just talking relatively. Under the microscope, they look like these enormous ferocious beasts. But that's magnified. In actuality, they're just a little speck on your finger. When we recognize that those around us are in Christ, the same that we are in Christ, we have a responsibility to look to their interests and their needs just as much as we do looking to our own. In Philippians, the Apostle Paul makes this statement, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. More significant. Christ considered his life a ransom for you. His life was not something so precious and dear to himself that he would not come and die in your place. And so as we live our lives in Christ, Paul's statement is count others more significant than yourself. We all have it, and he doesn't say not to pay attention to your own concerns. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. His statement there is, yes, you do have some concerns in your life. Yes, you do need to be concerned for those concerns, but not more so than for those around you who are also in Christ. He says, count others more significant than yourself. 
And so one of the things that happens to us as we live our lives in Christ is that we step back away from the microscope, we step back away from looking at our own problems and magnifying them so that they're so huge they consume the frame that we can't see anything else, and we say, no, whatever this issue is that I'm having in my life, I'm going to put it here with the Lord, and I am going to focus on blessing others. It frees you from spiritual myopia, and something really amazing happens. In 1 Corinthians The Apostle Paul, again, talking about the nature of spiritual gifts. He says that when we are given spiritual gifts, when we are empowered by God in Christ to bless other people spiritually, the spiritual gifts that we are given to us are to be used for the common good. He makes this statement, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He goes through this whole discussion because the Corinthians are really, uh, they're really enthusiastic for a particular spiritual gift, the gift of speaking in tongues. And he goes through this whole thing. He says, if an eye were to say, oh, I'm not an ear, I'm not a part of the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And he continues to emphasize that every part of the body, whatever part it is, is significant. And he comes to the end of that chapter and that is what introduces us then into chapter 13 in which he says, I'll show you a better way, the way of love. And as he describes love, you get the clear and unmistakable impression that love is always outward focused. Love is focused on the beloved. As we're looking at Jesus confronting Saul on the road to Damascus, do you think the Christians in Damascus who have heard that Saul, the legendary terrorist of the church, is on his way, do you think that they're just... Wow, that's great news. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. He's going to come here and arrest our moms and our dads, our brothers and our sisters. They're going to throw us all in jail or worse, possibly execute us, stone us for being heretics. Do you think that they're just filled with joy? No, of course not. This is concerning news. This man is a professional killer of Christians. He is a trained Pharisee. This is something to be alarmed about. And yet, as Saul is making his way to get these Christians in Damascus, Who's taking care of Saul? Jesus is taking care of Saul. And as Jesus is taking care of Saul, guess who else Jesus is taking care of? Jesus is taking care of all of those Christians in Damascus who might otherwise be worried that Saul is coming for them. So if you're in Damascus, and if perchance you had the foresight to think to yourself, perhaps Jesus is going to deal with this guy named Saul... The question presents itself, if I'm not going to waste my time worrying about Saul, what should I then be worrying about? And in that moment, the scriptures are clear. Loving those around you. Being as Christ to them. See, spiritual myopia, we are freed from that by being in Christ, which leads us not to its opposite, farsightedness. Because the reality is we can't see down the road. We can't see beyond today. We don't know what's coming. A lot of people say, I've got to stop focusing in on this little issue right here, and I need to just step back, and I'm going to start reading the newspapers, and I'm going to start pulling out my, my charts and my eschatology you know, flow charts and all of this. I'm going to figure out how this is all the end times about ready to unfold. And you're trying to write the end of the story. You've lost focus here on this little microscopic detail, and now you're trying to see all the way to the end of the road. Shouldn't do that either. Shouldn't do this either. The opposite of spiritual myopia is not farsightedness. It's enlargement. Enlargement. 
See, what happens is when you take your eyes off of your problems in Christ and you try to love those around you, you find that the space around you gets bigger. It gets larger. And it gets filled with more and more people. I already shared with you this last week was just an incredible week. We had a wonderful time down in uh, the States. We were attending a teacher training conference and learning all kinds of amazing things about how God disciples us, how God teaches us, learning about learning, how we learn and therefore how we ought to teach. This is how God teaches us. This is how we should imitate him as we try to teach others. Wonderful time, lots of fellowship, and of course, great food, great food, always. We're just enjoying it, and we recognize, oh, hey, you know, the Castens had their baby this week. That's great. Immediately you go on Facebook, and you start scrolling, looking for pictures, because you know they're going to put some pictures up on Facebook, and you're just waiting. Same with Chris and Amanda. You know, as soon as their little one was born, I think it was the next day or whatever, they put those little pictures on Facebook, and you're like, oh, and you're just so overflowing with joy, and you're like, okay, I'm back to Kamloops Saturday night. I'm going to go Sunday afternoon and see if I can visit and meet the little guy. So you have these thoughts, and you're filled with joy. Your heart is made happy. You're there with your friends, your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You're laughing. You're telling jokes. You're enjoying good food. It's happy. You're larger than yourself. These people are a part of you now as they are in Christ. And as you grow larger through these people, there's joy that comes. And there's also sadness. This past week, I received word that our contractor, who is working in our fireside room, did something perhaps absent-mindedly. He cut one of his fingers off with a skill saw. I am in the middle of an amazing plenary session on uh, how sin impacts, you know, the noetic effects of sin impact our ability to understand what we're trying to learn, you know. My phone buzzes. Bloop, bloop, bloop. I'm addicted to my phone, so naturally I pull it out to see what's going on. Ah, my contractor has injured himself this week. Now we've got questions of insurance and this and that and all these other things. And of course, I'm just worried for him because he's been here for four weeks now and I've gotten to know him quite a bit. And uh, I want him to be okay. And he will be. Sorry, I should probably say that. He's, uh, he's going to have his finger reattached surgically. It's okay. But you hear that, and you go from one moment of happiness to a moment of concern, and then you get back, and your brother calls you and says, a second grandchild has passed. I've got problems. You've got problems. I've got joy. You've got joy. what is most satisfying to the soul is that our happiness becomes the happiness of us all. And our sadness and our grieving becomes the grieving of us all. In Christ, we are enlarged. And that enlarging of our lives through Christ is an incredible blessing. We bless others, and they bless us. Which brings me to my third point. 
through this blessing which takes place through this enlarging of our lives, we experience refreshment. We experience encouragement and strengthening. A number of years ago, I, uh, it had been a busy scheduled season. It was the holidays, Christmas, and uh, I had gone from one event to the next event to the next event. I had traveled. I had spoken at a missions conference down in the States, come back, had all these things happening. Of course, I've got young kids at home as well, and that always adds an extra layer of, of complication to the hectic schedule. And so you're juggling all these things. And I remember we came to a point in which our small group, our care group, was having its Christmas party before the end, before the Christmas holidays were going to be a completely upon us. And I remember I came home from church. It was on a Sunday. I came home. I just preached. I'd been on the road. I'd been traveling, doing all these things, had this hectic schedule. I came back, was there. And I said, you know, like, I, I don't want to go. I'm tired. I want to stay home. This is when we were attending a care group out at, uh, out at um, Barnhart Vale, out at the Savages. And my wife says to me, oh, come on, it'll be fun. And that's the point. I'm tired. I don't want to have fun. (laughs) I want to stay home. I want to go to bed. I want to sleep. I am exhausted. And Shanti is on me. She's like, no, you've got to go. And uh, Lydia as well was saying, no, like, come on, this is it. We're going to play Telestrations tonight. This is like the greatest thing ever. And uh, we're going to go and hang out and eat food and enjoy each other and draw pictures and try to decipher each other's pictures. And it's going to be great. And I was like, no, nah, no. Nah. Finally, I, just because they were just constantly, they, they weren't going to let me stay. Like, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't have that choice. Men, you can relate. You want to stay home? Your wife's like, no, nah, no, nah, we're going. And she drags you out. That kind of happened to me. And I went, and we enjoyed it. And what I discovered by the end of the evening, as we're all sitting there in our ugly, it was an ugly Christmas sweater party. I remember this. What I discovered at the end of the evening was that I did, in fact, through that time of just fellowshipping, I did find refreshment. I did feel renewed, rejuvenated, energized. So often for all of us, we're running the Christian life. We're saying we're in Christ and we're going down the road and we hit a roadblock and we just tend to zero in on this issue, this tiny issue. And it may be a big issue. But we find ways to make it too big. We find ways to enlarge it to such a degree that we tell ourselves, nobody can understand what I'm going through. I'm here with this issue. I'm going to struggle with this. And it consumes you. My encouragement is step away from that. Set the microscope to the side. Set the issue to the side. It's an issue. I understand. But there are those around you who are in Christ. Enlarge your life with their lives. And through enjoying that fellowship, know rejuvenation and encouragement. In Philippians The Apostle Paul, again. Uh, Not Philippians, Philemon. Philemon 6. His prayer for you this morning is that the sharing of your faith will become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And this translation is a, 
It's technically accurate, but the Greek word there, sharing, that is translated sharing, is from the Greek word koinonia, which you understand means fellowship. Another way to read this, he's not saying that your evangelism, that as you go out and proclaim Christ, that that would be effective for you knowing what you have in Christ. He's saying that the sharing of your faith in a community sense, that the sharing of your faith would be effective for knowing what it is that you have in Christ. The fellowship that you embrace here in Christ would open your minds to understand even more what is there for you in Christ as Christ is here among us and with us. He goes on to say that it would become effective for a full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And a lot of people read this and they think, okay, so when I hang out with this person, what I find is that as I spend time with them, I discover the answer to my problems is within myself, right? No, that's not what he's saying. It's in us that Christ is the solution for our problems, that Christ indwells each of us, and that we together have a knowledge of all the resources, all of the solutions to all of our problems in Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning is Jesus saves you from your sins on the cross. And Jesus saves you from loneliness in the church. If you are in Christ, you are called to be in church. As Christ is in you, so he is in each of us. And as we do anything to any one of us, we do it to Christ. And as anyone does anything to us, they do it to Christ. Redwood trees are enormously large trees. In California, if you've ever been, you see these things. They're monsters. They can go as high as 300 feet in the air, have trunks as big around as 40 feet. You've probably seen pictures of them where there's like a hole cut out of a of a trunk, and there's like pavement that goes through it, and there's like a car driving through it. I mean, these are just massive, massive trees. You might have ever wondered to yourself, how is it possible that these trees could grow as tall as 300 feet and not be knocked over by the wind? Scientists began to discover this as well. Surely the redwood does not have a taproot that goes down 300 feet as the top goes up 300 feet. How is it possible these massive, enormous trees that have just grown so incredibly large can stand towering against all the elements, against the wind and the rain and the storms and the tornadoes and, of course, and... California, the fires, and all of this sort of stuff. How is it that they can stand against all of that? As scientists began to research, they realized that redwoods never grow alone. You can never get a redwood tree just to grow by itself. They always, always grow in groves, together in clusters. As they examined the roots of the redwood tree, they realized that these roots are individualistic, but that the way that redwood trees are designed by God to grow is that as they grow up, their roots spread out along the ground and they intertwine with each other. And they've done seismic tests on redwood trees that as the wind blows and hits one tree and that tree begins to sway under the strength of the wind, those roots pull and twist on the roots of other redwood trees around it. And those roots begin to release a really weird chemical that causes the tree to stiffen ever so slightly, all of them together. 
so that they present a united front against whatever wind is blowing against them. They are able to withstand the elements that come against them because they grow interconnected with each other. Now, this is how God designs trees in nature. What do you think his plan is for you in the church? Be in Christ, brothers and sisters. Pray with me.